0: This is City AM Unregulated. I'm Emma Hazlett. On this week's show, Richard Reed.
1: Innocent was inspired by a hangover
0: founder of Innocent Drinks and cultivator of Jam Jar Investments.
1: So we were on a snowboarding weekend at the time, feeling rough in the morning, thinking, oh, we could do something nice and fresh and healthy. That was like our bingo moment.
0: I'm finding success at the urinal.
1: Some people are just simply doorstepped. One guy at a urinal who said, look, I'll, I'll, I'll happily talk to you, but can I finish having a piss first?
0: And why the Smurfs launched his career.
1: And everyone had a smurfs stick on the inside of it I was thinking, that's a profit margin of 500%. I've never heard of a business since then that's made that kind of profit margin.
0: Hello and welcome to City AM Unregulated. This week we're joined at the London School of Economics by Richard Reid as he prepares to give a lecture on his new book. Our audience will know him as the man behind Innocent Smoothies but he also owns Jam Jar Investments which has put money into Deliveroo, Grey's and posh popcorn brand Propercorn. But let's start with tonight. What are you lecturing about?
1: The book is called If I Could Tell You Just One Thing and it's a collection of 62 encounters that I've been lucky enough to have with some of the world's most remarkable people where uh, i've I've met them in in various different places and times had big conversations with them about their life and their experiences and asked them to reflect on that life and those experiences and think about if there was only one piece of advice that they would pass on one particular insight that they have found to be true from everything that they've done and the book is a collection of these essays about the person about me meeting them about what's happened but it's all centered around their single best piece of advice and i'm talking about a very very wide range of people we have tried to capture the full spectrum of human emotions so from simon cowell at one end great guy amazing guy completely and utterly fun in love with him it was completely embarrassing <laughs> but from simon cowell at one end. To Lily Ebert at the other, who's a lady who survives Auschwitz when the rest of her family didn't. So you're sort of you're dealing with people who have been through the best of times, the worst of times. From presidents to pop stars, from survivors to celebrities, and and everything in between. The biggest names in politics, in business, in arts, in sports, in science, in medicine, in spirituality, and people with just big stories. And ask, and it's all about them passing on their advice to the next generation, and all. My royalties from the book go to social inclusion and mentoring charities. So I can say this for the book. It is absolutely altruistic in its intent.
0: So, I mean, it's a great premise. How did you meet all these people?
1: Well, it's like everything I've done in life. It's a combination of sort of being lucky, get uh, being cheeky, um but my experience of innocent which for 15 years running that the entrepreneurial community in london and in the uk is is relatively small so if you set up a business you'll find yourself in the rooms of different entrepreneurs so that's how i got to know people like sir richard branson and he was a brilliant source of advice and the great thing about innocent is it has a very strong ethical side that gives 10 of profits to charity and through my charity work that's how i got to meet president clinton and i spent eight days on a, eight country tour around Africa with President Clinton, travelling with him on his plane in what the staff has called the bubble, which is the experience when you're sort of sucked into this way of travelling where you fly in his plane and go in his convoy and eat at his dinner table and everything just sort of miraculously happens behind the scenes. You never check in or check out. It all just sort of, you just roll and with with the president. And So it's been a combination of business. Of, oh, and, and since excellent Innocent, I've worked in government, I've worked in the arts, I've worked in charity. So that's got me in the room. At various different occasions with some really smart people. And then some are mates, some are people I asked to interview for the book, and they kindly said yes. Yeah. Some people I just simply doorstepped. One guy at a, a urinal who said, Look, I'll, right. I'll, I'll, I'll happily talk to you, but can I finish having a piss first? So, I mean, <laughs> i just been by any means necessary. Who was it? Uh, so that was in particular was a guy called uh, well, Stuart Rose who at the time was CEO of Marks and & Spencers and yeah. at the time Innocent was in 2008 in a proper tailspin we were in a panic we were losing control of the business our market was slipping away from us. we actually didn't know what to do to and I, I, by coincidence I was at a friend's wedding and Stuart Rose happened to be at the same wedding and he was at the urinal the same time as I was and I said look that was like a only...
0: beautiful moment It was
1: a beautiful moment you know hanging out in the gents' toilets <laughs> So I said look is there any way I could possibly ask you your advice about our business he said Yes, but do you mind if I finish taking my piss first? So I thought it was a reasonable request, and he invited us um, in—not into the toilet, into his office—a couple of weeks later, and he gave us one single sentence of advice. What was that? Well, it's going to make sort of quite a long, convoluted story, and it was specific to the business at the time. But we'd lost a third of our sales in a three-month period. All our consumers were saying the products were too expensive, but we were spending more than they were on making them. So we were we were losing money with every single one because the price of fruit had gone up and the exchange rate had gone down. So we could we got what they were saying, they were too expensive. But we're literally losing money by selling them at the price we are. So trying to make them more expensive is a disaster. And he just said this very simple thing. He said, look, you know, you've got to hold on quality because that's what your brand's about. And he talked about Marks and Spencer's grapes. He said, we buy the best grapes in the world and they normally sell for one pound ninety nine a bunch, but that's too much for people to spend on grapes at the moment. So I just make the bunches smaller and sell them for 99p it's the same quality grapes but we just sell a smaller bunch and then people buy more of them and i thought that simple insight which i know sounds obvious but we genuinely hadn't thought of it. it's like you you hold on quality but you make the thing smaller so you can make it at a cheaper price
0: so just just sticking with innocent for the moment because i, I really want to keep talking about the book but mm. you know we're, available we're in innocent all the bookshops <laughs> yeah i mean but then you moved on and introduced a one liter carton mm. What what was the major? No 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 that? no
1: exactly. We 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 had been selling a one liter carton, and to make it cheaper, we made two things. We made a seven hundred and fifty milliliter carton, which we then sold for less money, but of course cost more per milliliter. And we also introduced a one point two five liter carton, which sold for absolute in absolute terms more money, but cheaper. milliliter than the liter carton so you could then as a consumer you could either spend less in absolute terms or get better value in terms of milliliter terms and it gave people the option to either save money or 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 buy in bulk and those two options got the business back into growth again and then actually you know the the three years after that the the business has been in in super strong growth
0: you eventually sold to coca-cola i think you've come under a bit of criticism for that what do you say to your critics
1: well actually we didn't come under that much criticism um and our view was always simply this is look you know what we've set out our innocent to be is we said we're going to always make natural healthy drinks that are going to be sustainably sourced and ethically produced that are going to be delicious and healthy and that give 10 percent of its profits to charity that's always been our brand promise we're going to taste good and we're going to do good and everything about that deal allowed us to do more of those things. We've now made even more healthy products. We've made even more money for charity. And it was an entirely innocent takeover of Innocent. Yes, we sold our shares to the Coca-Cola company, but not a single person from Coke came to do a job. Not a single person Innocent lost their job. The, our, our last job before we st- stood down was to appoint the new people to run the company. And that, all, that was all the people that had been at the board with us. So it was a complete takeover of Innocent. Actually, essentially what it meant was everyone internally got A promotion so the business was more excited and full of energy and I look at it now and I think the best three years of Innocent have been three years since we left you know the products are are more delicious more healthy we've never raised more money for charity all this sort of stuff you go well all the things that we said that we want to be about we're doing even more of.
0: So you're really happy with how it's been run since you
1: left? I have to say I I feel like so lucky it's a fairy tale it's an absolute fairy tale I set this business up with my two closest mates we run it for 15 years to the day and we all leave on the same day as even stronger friends than ever before. And we've left a company that's vibrant and in growth and where every single employee was a shareholder. So they all made money on the day that we sold to. And I was in there yesterday, the vibe of that place is, as I said, it's it's, it's better since we left. It's more innocent since we left. And But of course, any great company has to outlive its founders. Ford Motorcars isn't still being run by Henry Ford, is it? See, so at some point you have to realize that in 15 years in we're probably getting a little bit tired and jaded and stuck in our ways and you need to step back and let the new blood take over and get on with it but oh. what you can never do is let sight of the values and that's what in- Innocent was if anything was a community based around a set of values about keeping things natural healthy and ethical and that remains more true now than ever before.
0: At what point did you make that decision? To sell? To sell yeah to to kind of move on and give it, give it to a fresh blood as you
1: say. Well, it started in a, in a negative context. It started in 2008 when we were in a tailspin with the business and we, we were properly in jeopardy. We were in like days for the bank being able to foreclose us. We're thinking, oh my God, we're gonna be those guys you read about, the builder business being successful and then they lose everything. We needed to raise money. We had to sell a bit to save it. And that's when we started conversations with, with you know the investing community. But this is 2008, we started our fundraising on September the 14th of 2008, that's the day that Lehman Brothers went under, our financial advisor at the time said, congratulations, you're starting to fundraise on the worst day in the history of finance. Everyone was spooked. Coke weren't. They saw the value in the brand. They loved the philosophy of the company. They'd been wanting to support the, the brand for since our second year in business. And they'd been, I have to say, absolutely fantastic business partners. And their language, they said, look, why would we buy an oil painting and then try and paint over it? It's like... we had full operating control of that business even though when they are the majority of the shares because they said look we don't even want the ability to fiddle we're going to let you guys get on with it because we're busy running our own business but let us know if we can help and they've been absolutely true to their word.
0: And you have as you said worked in a lot of spheres since do you ever miss Innocent?
1: Well I don't have to miss Innocent because I'm still an advisor on the board and you know yesterday I was in there you know I I mentor some of the you know the, the, the people that work there and We still run the innocent foundation and yeah so i have to say no no i don't because i'm still getting my innocent fix a couple of times a month and and i live really close to the office so i drive past and i see the dude which is what we call the logo inside the the building Think, oh so nice to see him and you know and by the way if you come around to my house you'll see it's still rammed full of innocent products but i'm very grateful because what it's done is it is given it gives one a platform it gives you know having exited a successful business you've then essentially got time you've got money You've got confidence, you've got your sort of place in the world. And if you then don't make the most of that, then you just deserve a slap round the face, don't you? So, you know, I, I, the, the nature of the work I have done has changed, but I've never worked more than I'm working currently. It's just it's split between writing, philanthropy, investing, mentoring, sports. You know, it's just it's a after having done one thing for 15 years, I'm now doing sort of 15 things. Obviously, each of those to a less deep extent but in a way that, you know, I don't get any homework anymore. That's what's <laughs> that amazing. Nice. Yeah. yeah, Innocent was, you work, I'd be working eight till eight, go home, have dinner, and then that horrible sickly feeling after you've had your dinner and maybe watched a bit of TV, you think, oh, I've actually got to go back upstairs and sit in front of a computer and go, tappity-tap, tapity tap and write some PowerPoint presentation for the next day, and there was always homework. There's homework when you're running a business. No one's getting out of there without having to do their homework, and now I don't have homework. I love that. Not I have a homework. baby instead, so... <laughs> That's, that's, kind a of like, homework, like, that's yeah. like a lot of work at home for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: so I was quite interested to read that you started out washing windows as an, as an eight-year-old lad. Yeah. Um, do you think that kind of thing is a rite of passage for entrepreneurs? Do you think that kind of dictates what will happen when you grow up?
1: Well, I do know this. Uh, every entrepreneur that I've spoke to, including my two business partners, Adam and John, we've all got our story of something that we were doing when we were kids that was entrepreneurial adam used to do people's homework math homework in return for money john Brilliant. bit naughtier used to go to france and buy bangers and fireworks and sell them to his mates at school so we were all doing these sort of slightly questionable entrepreneurial things and every entrepreneur that i'd met was always up to something and i think we were just very blessed that we had parents that sort of basically secretly let us get away with it rather than sort of telling us to stop and you know i was doing some pretty outrageous things at school with my little sort of Trading businesses that I had, like buying stuff and selling stuff, I had this great line in Smurf stickers because I'd found near, <laughs> near to where my gran lived. She had this discount stationery shop that sold these massive Smurf stickers for three p. So I used to load up on those and sell them in school for fifteen p.
0: Were they the puffy kind? Were they?
1: No, the they were just like the flat. It was like a, a foot high, and because we all had those desks that lift up, and you have your own sort of flappy desk thing, lid, and everyone had a Smurf sticker on the inside of it. I was thinking that's a profit margin of whatever that is. It's like 500%. I've never been or seen or heard of a business since then that's made that kind of profit margin. So it's all been downhill since school, really.
0: So note to the kids, Smurf stickers are the way forward if you want to be an entrepreneur.
1: Absolutely. Get started.
0: So you then, after university, you worked in advertising and marketing for a long time. What made you start your own business?
1: Well, friendship is the short answer. Myself, Adam and John, we met at university and bonded over a sort of shared love of of nightlife and we used to organise nightclubs and DJ together and all that kind of stuff. And we just got a sense of two things. One, we so loved working together. And secondly, um, when we were running these nightclubs, that will insanely popular because we were the only people playing house music in Cambridge in the sort of the early 90s it was up until we started doing that everyone was just doing sort of rugby boys sing songs and stuff and we came along this is a bit lame let's do some proper house music nights so they were wildly successful because there was no competition and we'd be at these wicked events thinking we're actually enjoying it even more than the people that are coming to it we're enjoying it so much doing it together organizing and the fun of doing it and so we we genuinely said we wanted to create a business as a, as a vehicle that we could co-drive together through life to improve our quality of life. It was never about money. And quite honestly, it, it didn't start with being about smoothies. It started about a group of friends wanting to essentially pretend they were still at college. And <laughs> from committed to setting my business together, then we tried to come up with ideas and Innocent was inspired by a hangover. We were on a snowboarding weekend at the time, feeling rough in the morning, thinking, God, we could do something nice and fresh and healthy to make ourselves feel better. And it was like our bingo moment. Let's do that. Let's make smoothies. And we started from as basic ways you can. We started making them in our shared, in, in our kitchen, in our shared house in Barron's Court and selling them at a music festival.
0: And what made you build up the courage to ditch the day job?
1: For me, it wasn't about having courage to ditch the day job. The the, the stronger, it was a push. I was fearful of staying in my job, is is the truth of the matter. I was. I'd, I'd worked in an ad agency. I'd had a lot of fun in my early 20s doing that. It was, kind of like a, it was kind of like a job for people who don't want to have a job, which was kind of summed me a bit up. like
0: journalism, really.
1: Well, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think you probably work harder in journalism. You do in advertising. But I was just, I realised my boss, who I respected a lot and he was a great guy. He was 15 years ahead of me in his career. But he's in the same meetings as me, the graduate, having the same arguments with clients about the size of logos. And I thought, well, I can hack this for a little while. But I, 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 I was then scared about I didn't have a better plan. And I was then, again, you know, for me, life is a team sport. Business is absolutely a team sport. I was, again, it all comes down, at the end of the day, it comes down to luck. I happened to know two great guys where we had absolutely the same values, but completely different skills. And the three of us wanted to set up a business together. And we did.
0: So, you know, we ask all our guests on, on Unregulated to give their views on Brexit, but obviously you played a really important role because you were the deputy chairman of Britain Stronger in Europe. I
1: like to think that we, we, we couldn't have lost it without me.
0: <laughs> um, I mean, what, what do you think of the situation now? Do you think it's going OK? Do you think everything's going to be all right? Or do you think we're, you know, waiting for the uh, force to hit us?
1: Uh, my position is this. Let's have a look. In about two and a half years, if things go the way that Theresa May says they're going to go and if she and her government deliver on their responsibilities to us as as citizens, in two and a half years time, we'll have two things. One is a negotiated deal. And the second is two and a half years of hard, inarguable economic data of what has happened to this country over the next two and a half years as we go through this period of uncertainty looking increasingly like we're gonna go for a, a harmful Brexit. Now, in two and a half years time, we should all just have a very open-minded, pragmatic look at the option because the, my big, single biggest issue with the Brexit campaign, apart from the unbelievable amounts of, of lying, was they never gave us an option. It was just, you could either have what we've got or something else but no one would say what it is it's just that's an insane way to go about things we should have been given a or b to choose from it was either a or not a so in two and a half years time we'll see what the option is and we'll see how the market and the country's done in the meantime and then we should make our final decision because it ain't done yet so i think personally what's going to happen is it'll be a pretty rubbish deal And the economic data will show that we've been heading in the wrong direction. But I absolutely, absolutely want to be proven wrong. And by the way, I've been wrong many times in the past and I'll continue to be wrong in the future. So I'm hoping when we get there, it'll be a great deal and we'll be on a positive trajectory, in which case I'll be the first one to go, yep, I got it wrong, let's go for it. But they need to deliver a deal and then we need to look at it and then we need to decide.
0: What does a great deal look like though? And what's your worst fear?
1: What a great deal looks like is the current deal being part of the EU. The free free and unfettered access to the biggest market in the world with our closest allies, with countries that we have the greatest sharing of values in terms of peace and prosperity and human rights. We have the greatest deal imaginable right now. It is absolutely the responsibility of all the merry pranksters that took us down the Brexit route to come up with something better. And I really hope that they do. Because all I ever want, and to be fair, all they ever wanted is what's best for the country. That we can all agree on. We all want what's best for the country. So we know what the deal is with the EU. We don't know what the deal is with coming out. We're gonna to get to find out. So let's wait and see and if it's better then we should absolutely go for it. And if it's not, we should have the confidence to go. Sometimes when the information becomes clearer, you're allowed to change your mind. We're all allowed to change our minds. I'm gonna change mind if the deal is better and I'm gonna to stick to my position if the deal is worse.
0: What do you think unites all the people that you spoke to? Is there any kind of common theme through these successful people?
1: Well, one of my fears about the project was that everyone was gonna end up essentially saying the same things or, or thereabouts, but actually it, it, they're wildly different things. Now that of course is because we've asked completely different people. You, President Clinton, is going to be thinking about a different thing to Judy Dench, to Andy Murray, to Nicholas Sturgeon, to Marina Abronovic, to Mike Bloomberg. They, they, they just had different life experiences. And the guy that the Andy Reid, the, the Afghan vet, that had three limbs blown off of in Active Service, he's had a different life experience. And Casey Piper, the model and author and charity CEO, who had acid thrown into her face, She's had a different experience. So you're actually getting people that just had very, very different life experiences. But all of those experiences are remarkable. So are there some connections between them? Yes, of course there are. One is the thing that I alluded to earlier. No one who's doing anything exceptional is doing it by themselves. It is always. Life is absolutely a function of the quality of your relationships between your friends and your families and your teammates and your colleagues.
0: A huge amount of it seems to be about relationships, but also about individuality. There seemed to be a kind of juxtaposition there.
1: Yeah. Well, but I think it's you. People that do the best are the people that surround themselves and in, in, inhabit ecosystems with with their friends and their families and their colleagues and teammates that allow them and empower them and encourage them to chase their own personal passions and goals and ambitions. This is a great phrase from the novelist Ed. Edna O'Brien who says never forget what bestirs you and everyone that was doing something remarkable everyone was signed up to that principle of like it it's a cliche but all the best cliches are true you have to have that thing inside you that's driving you follow that passion be unreasonable don't care what the doubters say just get on with it and do it and the world really will in ways that you would never believe in that are unimaginable until you start committing to things. But when you stand up and you follow this thing that you deeply, deeply mean and take seriously and focus on it and work hard, the world's going to support you. Things are going to happen that you didn't ever budget for that's going to help you go along in doing your thing that you want.
0: Three more very, very quick questions. Mm. One of the people that you spoke to was Bill Clinton. Yeah. What do you think he will be telling his wife right now?
1: You're, you, you, can, you can handle this. That you know, and this is an objective truth, your, your, your experience, your decision-making prowess, your commitment to public service, 50 years of it, you know you are the best candidate. And you, you, you just keep going and, 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 and have absolute faith and confidence that the truth will out. You are the person that has got the, the wider country's interests, better interests at heart. And so keep going. You can handle it. You can do it. And I, I can't tell you how much I would. It's so annoying as a British person. You can't vote in American elections. I get why you can't. But wow, would I be voting for Hillary?
0: And no pressure but the fate of the world rests on your shoulders. Um, so second last question. Um, if there was one piece of advice that you could give to somebody, what would that be? very quickly
1: my personal favorite i sum it in one word and it's contribute i think it as a simple organizing principle in life is in whatever situation you are be it personal business community work contribute and i mean it in the small scale stuff when you go at any friend's house for dinner contribute you know offer to help with the washing up and at work your career is going to be enhanced by if you're the person that's always volunteering or offering, or even better, just practically getting on to doing stuff to further the team and further the mission of the organisation. And life gets better for everyone. But, of course, we're all selfish beings. We want to do what serves us best, contribute to charity and time, energy, money. That deeper spiritual benefit will pay dividends over the years as well. If your mate's down and needs a, a leg up, contribute. But it could just be contribute, shoulder to cry on and listen, listen to or taking him out for a beer so my whole principle is like just try and yeah do your best in whatever situation you are to contribute
0: and just before you go off to deliver your lecture here at the London School of Economics my last question and that is what is your favorite piece of advice from your book
1: my favorite piece of advice is from uh, the number one relationship advisor and sex therapist in the world a woman called Esther Perel who just said very very simply you know her, she'd saw, she'd grown up as a kid and seen her parents who were holocaust survivors sort of they'd come out of the concentration camps with nothing apart from the relationship between those two they had no money n- nothing other than that relationship and they said that was all that mattered and she just she has crafted and sort of studied human beings across the world and go, your quality of life let's face it we all want to have as nice a life as possible right our our qualities of life the single biggest determinant of our quality of life is the strength of our relationships of our friends and families and so if you can make your life think about the decisions you make in your life about how can they how they serve those relationships with the people that we love and hold dear your own quality of life just gets better and better and it's not the most original thing I probably already knew it if i sort of thought about it but she was just expresses it so eloquently in the book and I just think yeah I, I really want you to have a nice life and me to have a nice life and all everyone listening to have a nice life and we're going to have a better ones if we really think about the people around them, how we make them feel, being generous to them, looking after them, and then them doing the same for us, and then we all have a, and we all have a nice time.
0: Well, Richard Reed, thank you so much for joining us today, Pleasure. and have Pleasure. a great lecture. Pleasure. But thanks to Richard Reed and the LSE, this has been City AM Unregulated. Of course, you can, as usual, get it on cityam.com by subscribing with iTunes, Audio Boom, or even with RSS on your favourite podcast player. City AM Unregulated is an Audio Boom production.